Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Well, I'm tuckered out because I've been cleaning the apartment. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you did a lot of work today. Listeners, can you tell? Can, does it sound cleaner? <laughs> I, I guess I would, it would be like you hear more echo sounds because right. the dust isn't like absorbing, absorbing things. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are watching The Devil Doll from 1936. It's a Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer film, and it's going to be the last movie we see from Todd Browning. I've been really looking forward to this movie because it sounds so bad. I've never seen it, but, like, it certainly seems like it's going to be a weird one. I did a little bit of research about the guy who wrote the novel that this movie's based off of. Okay. And that novel sounds super rad, <laughs> but this, I don't know what to expect from this movie. Sure. So what's the deal with the novel? Okay, so the novel is called Burn Witch Burn. Okay. And you have to kind of say it that way because there's an exclamation point at the end. Right. And it was... Written in 19... Well, it was published in 1932 and written by Abraham Merritt. And Merritt lived between 1884 and 1943. So he actually died fairly young, only around uh, 59 years old. Mm-hmm. And though he comes to Scream Scene because of the fiction work that uh, we'll be talking about, he had a pretty significant journalism career. After earning a law degree, Merritt started work as a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer and later as an assistant editor at the American Weekly. And with this kind of steady and growing journalism career, um, Merritt made a lot of money. Um, He was actually very well paid for a reporter of his time, and he eventually made around $25,000 a year by 1919. Wow. And to give you an idea of what that is today, that is a six-figure salary, $360,000 a year. Wow. I don't think any journalists are making that these days. And because he made that much money, he had a lot of financial stability, which would go to fueling Merritt's love of world travel. And that, in turn, inspired a lot of his fiction writings. Um, He was also... And this is what I love about him. He was also super into the occult. Okay. Um, He apparently collected strange pieces from around the globe when he would go traveling, uh, like occult masks or things like that. He would write and collect writings on the occult. And also got really into herbalism because of, like, witchcraft and the making of potions and okay. things like that. Right? Okay. He sounds super weird, right? I yeah. Know, he seems super cool. Weird, eccentric, globe-trotting, rich journalist. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like, like a, a guy I want to know. Sounds like a DuckTales character. <laughs> so if you were to look up Merritt and what kind of fiction writing he did, you would see the genre tags of speculative or supernatural fiction 
really, you could just call it all pulp fiction. Sure. Weird tales. Yes. So these are adventurous stories, including exotic locales, newly rediscovered civilizations, horrible monsters putting scantily clad damsels in distress, pulp novels, yeah. and short stories. Sure. His first short story was published in 1917, and it was called Through the Dragon Glass. Um, his first... An adventure for levels one to four. <laughs> his first novel was The Moon Pool in 1919. Um, but as was... Kind of the case with um, a few novels and a few of his novels. There were some that were serialized in magazines and then later collected into full novels. For example, The Metal Monster in 1920. Okay. Um, some of his other notable works include The Ship of Ishtar from 1924 and Creep Shadow from <laughs> 1934. So the story that was adapted into the film we're seeing today is... Burn Witch Burn from 1932. And this isn't the first time one of Merritt's, Merritt's stories would be adapted to film. In 1927, he published a book titled Seven Footprints to Satan. Oh, yeah. And this was adapted in 1929 into the silent horror film of the same name, directed by our old Hexen director, Benjamin Christensen. Yes. And it features a young couple being kidnapped by a satanic cult. Yes. Why did we not watch this? Uh, it's a lost film. There oh. aren't any copies. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yep. Because it sounds rad. Yeah, we would have watched it if we could have. Burn Witch Burn is similarly in that horror vein, even though it came like five years later. And it features a doctor who treats a gangster for this mysterious disease uh, which seems to kill its victim in horrible ways. The descriptions that I found were quite gruesome. Like, uh, you essentially die in horrible pain, and you have, like, this horrible laughter coming from you okay. at the same time. Kind of like a mix of, like, what you see with the laughing fish with Batman. Mm -hmm. And how you see Gwyneth Paltrow die in Contagion. Okay. Seems like those... <laughs> okay. Yeah, that... Kind of pictured that. So this doctor tracks this disease across several patients and deaths, leading him back to a creepy doll shop run by a supposed witch. So I made a joke last episode that maybe the devil doll would be the origins of Chucky. Judging from this novel, it seems to have more of a gremlins feel. Okay. Huh. Yeah. How much of that do you think makes it into the film? I don't know. There's only, like, one thing you mentioned that sounded vaguely familiar to okay. what I know about the movie. <laughs> sure. So this is going to be interesting. Um, the Devil Doll was MGM and Todd Browning's follow-up to Mark of the Vampire from the previous year. Uh, Mad Love had been made sort of in the interim, but that hadn't been Todd Browning. Now, Devil Doll, as well as Mark of the Vampire before it, stars Lionel Barrymore. So this was really, you know, teaming these two guys back up for a follow-up, because Mark the Vampire had been mildly successful. However, due to the collapse of the American horror film genre um, <laughs> in the wake of the fall of the Lemley family and the banning of the genre outright by the British Board of Film Censors, the Devil Doll had a difficult gestation period, 
going through multiple script revisions and retoolings by MGM executives who were concerned with tempering what was shaping up to be another weird Todd Browning movie. (laughs) Um, And the market at this point was clearly losing its tolerance for weird. I mean, Todd Browning hasn't had the best of luck with audiences. No. He has on the list. Yes. But not with audiences of his time. No. So the film was produced by Joseph Edgar Allen John Mannix, who's better known as Eddie Mannix. The guy from Hail Caesar? Exactly. He's the the Josh Brolin character in Hail Caesar. That's a very heavily fictionalized version of Eddie Mannix. Uh, If you want to see a film with a less fictionalized version, (laughs) he was also played by Bob Hoskins in Hollywoodland. I think um, the podcast, You Must Remember This, had a really good episode on Eddie Mannix after Hail Caesar came out. Yes, um, I would highly recommend that episode. Uh, it's um, If you haven't heard of You Must Remember This, it's Karina Longworth's podcast about Golden Age Hollywood history, and there's a whole episode on Mannix. It's a much superior podcast to this one, and a much... Like No, don't say it that way. It's, like, yeah, it's really good, and yeah, it's superior in terms of its focus on the history, or like the, this particular history in the film industry, in the American film industry, but that's also not our focus, so calling it superior makes us sound like, really, like... It's a much more in-depth look at Mannix than I have time to give here. So, Mannix was born in 1891, and he worked as a bouncer, a treasurer and had mob connections before becoming involved with the film industry initially as an exhibitor, but eventually rising to become general manager and vice president of Metro-Golden-Mare. Nice. So where Mannix gains most of his fame today is in his role as MGM's fixer. Uh, His primary duty being to keep MGM stars out of the tabloids and devise ways to cover up details of their private lives in order to maintain their public image. And there's a lot you can read about this. He had a lot of interesting and creative ways of getting these various celebrities out of these fixes, and um, some of them are less ethical than others. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, So Eddie Mannix, therefore, he's involved in some of the great Hollywood cover-ups and scandals of all time. And, yeah, it's just a little too much to go into here, so check out the You Must Remember This episode about him. The initial story treatment for The Devil Doll was by Todd Browning himself and was called The Witches of Timbuktu. Oh, boy. Based on the novel (laughs) Burn Witch Burn by A. Merritt. But MGM was keeping Browning on a pretty short leash at this point, so to ensure that the resulting movie would be an acceptable product, the script went through a series of revisions by what ultimately was three other writers. Um, So first up was Guy Endor. Oh, yeah. The uh, activist and novelist behind Werewolf of Paris and the scripts for Mark of the Vampire and Mad Love, uh, which were MGM's two most recent horror efforts, so it sort of makes sense they would start with him. Then came Garrett Fort with a pass on the script, who, of course, 
we know from the scripts for Dracula, Frankenstein, and Dracula's daughter. Mm, right. And then finally, even disgraced director-actor Eric von Stroheim took a swing <laughs> at this script, resulting in a storyline that combined Browning's love of bizarre horror themes with a sentimental, estranged family storyline designed to pull at audience heartstrings in the melodramatic style that MGM was known for. Oh boy, I can't wait to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mix of things. The Devil Doll reunites Todd Browning with Lionel Barrymore, who we spoke about in more detail in our Mark of the Vampire episode. As we mentioned in that episode, Barrymore was in the later stage of his career at this point, and his physical health was deteriorating. He had appeared in five films in the time since Mark of the Vampire, uh, and would appear in many more in the future. But from around 1936 onwards, Barrymore would largely act from a wheelchair. The lead actress of Devil Doll is Maureen O'Sullivan. Born in Ireland in 1911, she began her career in film at age 19 in Song of My Heart from Fox. <laughs> she appeared in nine movies for Fox over two years before signing with MGM in 1932. Her breakout role was as Jane in 1932's Tarzan the Ape Man, alongside Johnny Weissmuller as Tarzan, a role that she would reprise in five sequels over the next ten years. Nice. During this time, MGM also utilized her in other pictures, so sort of alternating her between a Tarzan movie and a... Something else. Something else. Um, these include The Thin Man, Anna Karenia, and, um, well, The Devil Doll. She would go on to have seven children with her husband, John Farrow, the most famous of which is probably actress Mia Farrow. Oh. Yeah. Cool. The last actor I want to draw attention to in the cast of The Devil Doll is Henry B. Walthall, whose name should sound familiar. It does, but I don't recall from what. So he was an early favorite of D.W. Griffith, and we first saw Henry in 1909's The Sealed Room as the minstrel way back in episode one. <laughs> and then we saw him in 1914's The Avenging Conscience in the lead role way back in episode three. Right. Um, he was also in Todd Browning's 1925 film London After Midnight, which is lost, of course. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be the last time we see Henry B. Walthall as he would make five more films in 1936 before collapsing of exhaustion on the set of his final film, and dying three weeks later of intestinal failure at the age of 58. Dang. So yeah, it's sort of a, a reunion with us with a, an old, old friend. You know, this has the potential to be really good. Or very terrible. Or very terrible. So The Devil Doll was released on July 10th, 1936. Critical response was positive, with praise going to the special effects work in particular. However, it was not a financial success with audiences, adding more fuel to the fire that was Hollywood's decision to abandon the horror genre, uh, and which MGM in particular would not return to for five years. Alright. Well, how are we watching this? So The Devil Doll is available to rent and stream on Google Play and YouTube, and it is also on DVD in the Legends of Horror collection. 
And that's how we are watching it. Correct. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to watch The Devil Doll with us, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and check out the YouTube list there. You will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be back after the break. See you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Devil Doll from 1936, directed by Todd Browning. Ben, what did you think? This was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. It was pretty rad when it wanted to be. (laughs) Yeah. I can see (laughs) where that sort of comment would come from. Yeah. I feel like there could have been a better title for this movie, because... The Devil Doll feels like, like I get it, but it's also... Not accurate? It's not what this movie's about. Like, it gives you an impression of what this movie's about that isn't what this movie's about. What would you call this? I don't know. The Revenge of Madame Mandalip or something. Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) Yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire's Revenge. What is this movie about, Sarah? Well, in in the opener, you kind of described how... In the making of this film, they wanted to balance out the horror with, like, family drama. hmm Well, they definitely succeeded in doing that. The Devil Doll is about Paul Lavand, who has been in jail for 17 years. He claims he's innocent and that it's his three bank associates, partners. Yeah, yeah partners in the bank that he used to own. Yeah, um, they set him up. And he has escaped from jail with his prison mate, Marcel. And as they are escaping, they take refuge at Marcel's place. Turns out Marcel and his wife, Melita, are crazed scientists. Yeah, they're a mad scientist couple. It's really romantic. Yeah, and they are developing technology that's able to shrink living things. And Marcel, you know, he says now if everyone was shrunk to one-sixth of their size, they would only require one-sixth of food, for example. Yeah. So, like, global food crisis is averted, you know, your ecological footprint goes down to a sixth of what it would have been. So he thinks this is great. Yeah. There's just one hiccup, though. When you are shrunk, because your brain is shrunk, you no longer have free will. You can obey commands due to thought waves yeah you, you, you your brain has been wiped so you can't do anything but you're susceptible to telepathy somehow that anyone basically can do they just need to like look at you and like squint their eyes and concentrate real hard and then you'll just do whatever they think yeah so <laughs> there's a little problem in marcel's plan here he thinks he's come up with an idea of how to fix that but in the process of testing that, Amelita's servant, Lashna, it does not work. Lashna is now a little person, a little lady, can only take commands. And Marcel, at this failure, has a heart attack and dies. Paul, his whole thing with getting out of jail is to wreak revenge on the three men who put him in jail. So he 
agrees to help Melita on this plan of shrinking everyone, but really only to his own ends of revenge. They go to Paris, everything's set in France, and uh, in order to get around without being noticed, this is when we see Paul Avand uh, dress up as Madame Mandelip. The thing that's nuts about this to me, Sarah, is, like, it makes sense because the bank, the evil bankers have put, like, a bounty on Paul Avon's head because they know he's going to be coming for them. But we never, like, see the thought process or moment when Paul Avon, like, decides on this plan. We just sort of cut from Marcel's dad, Melita, you're going to help me with my plan, to suddenly there's an old lady going around Paris and she's actually Paul Avond in, in old lady drag. I mean, there's probably some kind of thought process of who's going to suspect a little old lady of anything. Yeah. You can kind of get a, around without anyone noticing you. There's it, like, there <laughs> is like a nugget to like, ah, this is why you would choose this. But there, it's quite a leap within the film itself where yeah. it just kind of lets you get past like why someone would pick that disguise and also like, the whole process of them having to, like, set up this fake business that they have. Yeah, they have a fake toy business. Lots of toys in this toy shop, um, but they don't sell anything. <laughs> He's a Batman villain, okay? Oh, he <laughs> He's really a Batman is. villain. Like, he has a lair, he has yeah, Isn't there a Batman villain called, like, the Toy King or something like that? I think you're thinking of Toy Man from Superman. Well, but anyways. it's basically he's he, he like <laughs> he's got this front toy shop that like where did if he's not actually a toy manufacturer where did all these toys come from and anyways anyways Melita's been busy. It's to cover the fact that they have these weird shrunken yeah things. Yeah. Anyway, so his whole idea is like I'll sell these living dolls to the people who I want to kill. I'll make the dolls come to life at night and kill the people. Right. That's the whole basic idea. Meanwhile, the film decides to be like, oh no, let's let's show Paul try to reconnect with his family. Yeah. Which goes terribly. His daughter, Lorraine, just is like, yeah, my father's a piece of shit. Like, hate him. For 17 years I've had to live with this, like, the shame associated with this name. Her mom apparently killed herself. Yeah. With, you know, her husband being sent to jail. Her grandmother... Paul's mom is, like, sickly ill because they're in poverty. Yeah. Whatever. So that's a whole thing. And Paul learns all of this because he's pretending, you know, he's dressed up as Madame Mandelip and, you know, becoming friends with this family. It's, mm -hmm. it's a whole who cares. It's Mrs. Doubtfire. The exciting part of this movie is when he doesn't actually kill Anybody. Anybody. Um, because that's murder. And he's innocent. Yeah, he's a good guy. So he gets these dolls to, with poisoned knives, um, stab the people and they, these people become paralyzed. So the first of the three banking partners that he gets, he lures in as Madame Mandelip um, for an investment opportunity and stabs the partner himself uh, with this poison and then turns the banking partner into a little living doll. The second person he sells Lashna as a living doll to his family for their daughter who then, um, Lashna then in the middle of the night, you know, becomes a living doll, robs the place yeah. and uh, stabs 
that banking associate with the poison, who's and he's now paralyzed for life. Like, it's not like a, oh, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair now. It's like, no, he's, like, frozen in place. Yeah, he's he has the D&D condition petrified. Yeah, that's what happens to him. And then he... <laughs> and then Paul, as Madame Mandelip, delivers a note to the last banking partner that is basically confess, or at 10 p.m. tonight, you're next. He's a Batman villain! This is something Batman villains do! Yep. Um, and of course he uses um, the first banking partner doll to sneak into the house. <laughs> and he's about to stab the third guy, um, the third man, if you will. And uh, that's right when he confesses, like, no, we set him up, Lavon's name is clear, whatever. So you'd think that that would be, like, we're wrapping things up, okay. You know, Lavand is like, sweet, I don't have to pretend to be Madame Mandelip anymore, my name's clear. <laughs> hey, Melita, um, I'm kind of done with this doll business. And Melita's like, no, you're not. We were going to turn the whole world small. What do you mean? You can't be done. This is Marcel's dream. Um, and because she's apparently crazy, goes to blow Paul up. Yeah, in, in the laboratory. In the laboratory shop. Toy shop. She does succeed in blowing the place up and blowing herself up, but Paul survives. You'd think that this is where it would end and Paul does not survive and, you know, blowing up whatever, roll credits, we're done here. But this is an MGM movie and not a Universal movie. So we have to have this whole thing of Paul goes to Lorraine's love interest gets his help in getting Lorraine up to the top of the Eiffel Tower to tell her, like, hey, um, I'm not your dad, uh, but your dad wanted me to tell you that he loves you very much, and you can have a happy ending now that your name is clear and everything's fine. And she's like, oh, thank you. I love my dad now because he was actually never guilty. And he's like, cool. By the way, your dad died in the escape, so you'll never hear from him again. And then Paul leaves... And it's implied he's going to kill himself. Yes, there is that implication. It's it's strongly implied he's going to go kill himself. The idea is that, like, even though his innocence of the, like, bank fraud embezzlement from 20 years ago has been, like, cleared, he's now literally guilty of all the new crimes, so he still can't, like, he feels he still can't be with his family. But it's enough that their names have been cleared, so they don't have to live with the shame, so he's done... So after he, he reconnects with his daughter, it's, like, there's that lines of dialogue where, you know, like, her love interest is like, well, the sun will rise again tomorrow, sir. And he's like, will it? And then, like, walks away. Like, he's yeah. going to go kill no, himself. No, like, he explains to Melita that, like, I'm fine with dying. Like, I'm going to die. It's I just don't want to die in this lab explosion with you. I just don't want to die yet because I need to go resolve my father-daughter issues. And you're crazy. Yeah. The end. That's that's the end. So I can tell what parts of this movie you didn't like. It's, it wasn't so much that I didn't like it. It was just like, why is this in this movie? The best parts of this movie are when it's doing horror, but also when just out of nowhere, Madame Mandelip is like behind the door waiting to come in or like comes in to like start manipulating these guys into being stabbed or whatever. Like that part... It's great, because you, you're in on the, not the joke, you're in on the scheme. Yeah, it's really good dramatic irony, because, you know, 
here's this guy that all these dudes are terrified of and is able to just come and go as they please because, you know, oh, it's Madame Mandelip, a harmless old lady, right? So he can get into their houses and he can he can do all these things because, oh, well, you know, I'm just an old lady. Like, <laughs> it's... It's... It's something. His... Like, I'm not kidding when I keep comparing it to Mrs. Doubtfire. That's basically what Lionel Barrymore is doing here in terms of the old lady impression. Yeah. It's also very reminiscent of, like, I don't know, like the Monty Python-style old lady. <laughs> like, it's that kind of, like, oh, well, you know, I'm an old lady. The thing about this movie I found is that it's like three movies yeah. mashed together. There's one movie that's like a mad scientist movie that's about shrinking people, right? <laughs> yeah. That's one movie. There's another movie that's basically a revenge movie, the gimmick of which is the Mrs. Doubtfire thing. And then there's a third movie, which is a melodrama about this broken family, right? Yeah. The thing is, like, all three of those movies are honestly pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like, they're well done, um, they're... They just don't belong together. Yeah, they don't gel. Like, the sci-fi and the horror go okay together. But, like, they work together. But they're definitely still two different movies. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. What's weird is that Browning shoots each... Part. Part the way it should be shot. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't make, you know, this weird three-headed script... And shoot it all like a horror movie, but, like, the Mad Scientist stuff is shot how a Mad Scientist movie should be shot. And then, like, the weird revenge movie is shot how that should be shot. And the melodrama stuff is done how that should be done. Like, it's all well done, it just doesn't quite gel together. And I think I have a theory on why it doesn't mesh, other than the obvious. (laughs) Because the obvious is just that, like... Those are three different movies. Yeah. There's, like, shrinking people has nothing to do with dressing up like an old lady in a toy store to get revenge, which has nothing to do with, like, reconciling with your estranged daughter. Yeah. But the reason why it doesn't work in this instance is Barrymore. Really? Yeah. Ironically, like, I think it's him who kind of wrecks it. He's a versatile enough actor that he's totally able to pull off all three shades of his character. He is great as vengeful Levand, who's all angry and bitter. He's great as, like, the repentant Levand at the end, who's, like, all sad and regretful and remorseful and stuff. And he's great as Madame Mandelip, which is basically just a super camp performance. The problem for me is that he never quite manages to get those three sides of the character to blend together to seem like they're the same person. You know, in some scenes, Levand is, you know, barking orders at Melita and practically gleaming with glee at this revenge he's going to undertake. But then when Melita's like, oh, we need to turn everyone small, he's like, no, that's that's wrong. And then, like, when he talks to his daughter, he's all, like, sad about stuff. Like, he doesn't quite seem like the same guy. And because he's the only actor who's really in all three of these little movies within the movie, um, if he can't blend that character together, those three elements of the movie don't blend together. That's At least that's my take on it. Um, I don't know if it's 
Barrymore's fault in terms of delivering the performance, I think um, it's kind of the fault of the code. Like, he's not able to really go for the vengeful guy because he has to still be innocent and have empathy at the end. Sure. You know, we still have to have sympathy for him, which is strange because when the film opens, um, we meet these two guys in a swamp. Marcel's like, I have dreams, you see, and they're going to help the world. And Paul is like, I don't care about helping the world. I just care about getting revenge on these three specific guys who are going to suffer for what they've done to me. Yeah. And then we get to the house, and Marcel's like, see, I'm going to help the world by shrinking them. And Paul's like, I just wanted to do revenge on three guys. What are you talking about? And it's so weird how, like, the movie starts with, like, going, like, no, Paul's the bad guy, and yeah. then suddenly he's not. Well, and, and sometimes he is, and sometimes he isn't, right? Like, but when he is, I feel like his performance isn't... I don't think it's a lack of ability on Barrymore's part. I feel like it's a lack of, like, room to go there because of the constraints on the genre right yeah, now. The writing's not really there to support those mm. shifts. Yeah. Um, I don't... Honestly, like, I totally see your point about how the code impacts this movie, and I totally agree. Even with that inconsistency, I still don't really see how this movie got past the code. Like, you can see (laughs) where the script is jumping through the hoops to try and make it code-friendly, but it's still, like, a movie about, you know, breaking the laws of nature, enacting a scheme of revenge, and, uh, you know, even has suicide as part of the plot, both with like backstory of his wife killing herself and the highly implied fact that he's going to go do it after the fade out. And yet Levand is the character who remains sympathetically portrayed throughout. Like all you had to do to have it not be a problem is have him not be sympathetic. So this choice to have this family melodrama in here where he's still going to be the good guy and reconcile with his daughter at the end is the thing that like, retroactively makes the rest of the movie harder to make. It's super weird. Yeah. What I get from this movie is the writers or the people involved, whatever, saw The Walking Dead. Mm. And they took that plot, like what made The Walking Dead work as a horror film in the context of the code, and we talked a lot about it in that episode, and took the idea of the homunculi from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. And, and just made this movie. But, like, The Walking Dead worked because the main character was more of a puppet of God yes. rather than anything else. Yeah. It, could, it somehow found a way to go dark. Like, real dark. Without it compromising, like, getting past the code or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas this film... We needed to see the daughter happy because of the code. Like, that that thing needs to be wrapped up in a happy way. So we have to spend the last, like, ten minutes of the film having that happen. Yes. Rather than just having Lamond blow up when Matilda or Melita or whatever throws the bottle. Yeah. We are, And this is what I mean with, like, we also couldn't see Paul get too despicable. Yeah. Because we have to want him to reconcile with his daughter at the end. Whereas, like, 
with The Walking Dead, we didn't really have to worry about that because he's being used as a puppet by God. The other thing that doesn't work there is he is clearly in some sections of the movie supposed to be like the villain who's, you know, all cackly and stuff. But we know that he was set up. So we know that the bankers are the bad guys where the movie fails in making the morality clear. It, at least in a big way for me, is with its portrayal of those bankers. Yeah. Um, because they aren't despicable enough. They, they, there's a really, um, I, I might have even talked about this on the show before, but like when you read Punisher comics, mm-hmm. there's a whole rule about how to get Punisher comics to work because he's just a guy who goes around killing people and that's not super likable. And the way you do it is by making the people he's killing so immensely despicable and disgusting that when the Punisher comes in to kill them, you're cheering. The problem in this movie is like, there's one guy who has a monocle. He's kind of an ass. And then there's like another dude with a pencil mustache. Who's just kind of like a coward. And then there's like a dude with a goatee. Who's like a family man with like a wife and a daughter. Like none of them are, you know, like we needed to see them like, you know, whipping people in the streets and being, like, absolute ludicrous, uh, you know, capitalist, uh, you know, robber barons, right? Like, we needed to see some, like, orphanage owner coming into the bank and being like, please don't foreclose on the orphanage at Christmas! And, like, the bankers being like, fuck you! Like, that's what we needed to see so that when Levon came in and, and did revenge, it was like, ah, these guys deserved it, right? Yeah. Like, that's the thing that doesn't work here. That's very true. I think that's a really good point. It, there's definitely a push-pull here between... You can tell, sort of, that this movie might have started as a horror movie. Which it did. Right. With Todd Browning writing it. And then, like, at some point, the MGM execs were like, Well, maybe if we pull our punches and turn it into this family melodrama, it won't suffer the fate of these other horror movies that are failing at the box office. Like, let's change it into something else, like, midstream. And then that decision, having these weird ripple effects of having to go back and, like, reverse engineer other parts of the movie to get it to fit together, you know, and it's still being awkward because Todd Browning has such an affinity for weirdos and outcasts that... Levant was probably always going to be a little bit sympathetic anyways, just because it's Todd Browning. Yeah. I think this movie is worth watching just for the special effects. Yeah, man. It's, it's a lot of fun. The scenes with the, the, the little people walking around, the, the standout one is with, um, the, the woman. Lashna. Um, going around in the dude's house and like stealing stuff and killing him and stuff. Because a lot of the shrinking effects in this movie are done with, optical printing effects like a mat um and and you know they're good but you can tell but a lot of the effects in the house are like they built giant chairs and doors and dressers and and windows and slippers like all these giant oversized props and sets for her to interact with and i'm just looking at this going like holy crap, this must have been expensive. Yeah. Like, no wonder MGM was like, well, fuck horror, you know, when this didn't make money. If you think about how much money this must have cost. Yeah. It's it's really impressive. 
it's really cool to see. I mean, the whole movie's a lot of fun, honestly. Like, it's it's well shot, it's well acted, it's even well written, even though the different... Pieces? The different pieces don't come together, but in isolation, those pieces are well written. Like, if you took that last scene that you found so aggravating uh, <laughs> between Levand and his daughter and stuck it in a movie where it belonged, that's a good scene. Yeah. It's well performed by the two actors. It's good. It's just... It's just, it's not, it shouldn't be in this movie. Yeah, and that's a that's a good point, too. Like, if you took these three disparate movies and cut up the movie so each, you know, relevant piece was in each relevant pile, yeah. I feel like the horror movie parts, even the science fiction parts, if those were put in, that would still be a pretty good movie. Um, and I think that is kind of due to Todd Browning's filming and the cinematography involved. Yeah. Like, there's um, a lot of shadow usage in, like, the right scenes. Um, it's it's very well done and spooky in parts. So I, I think he does a, a fairly good job of that. There's good camera movement. Um, the first scene where they shrink uh, the girl. Yeah. It has, like, a lot of really good editing and... and, and close-ups and weird shots and stuff. There's a really cool montage when the French police are searching. Yeah! That reminded me a lot of, um... M. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's parts of this movie that really reminds me of M. Yes. Um, yeah. So overall, good movie? Sufficient movie? It's good, but it's broken. Good, but it's broken. But how do you feel about it in comparison to other horror movies? Well, let's look at ranking. Yeah. So, Sarah, um, when I first started thinking about ranking this movie, I started with another movie that has tone issues and feels like two different movies glued together, which is Murders in the Room Morgue. Okay. Uh, So I sort of started around there, and I thought, maybe this is better than Murders in the Room Morgue. Now, the horror isn't as horror but the non-horror is better. <laughs> in, in the sense sure. that, like, what isn't horror in The Devil Doll is more relevant, you know, and, and develops character and, you know, is well done and well written, whereas what isn't horror in Murders in the Remorgue is fluff. Sure. But I started with Murders in the Remorgue. That's where I started looking. So I thought maybe this is better. So my ceiling is right there uh, because it's certainly not better than Dr. X. And then above Dr. X, you got Unheimlich Geschichten and, you know, good movies. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this might go as high as number 30. And then working my way down from there, I had arguments in my head kind of for or against a lot of these. Where I bottomed out was at number 36. I thought, maybe The Mummy is better than this because, you know, The Mummy's more thoroughly horror than this is. Mm. Even though maybe this movie has the better story or the more interesting story since the mummy story is just Dracula. But this is probably better than Supernatural, (laughs) which, while the two movies share a lot of elements of feeling disjointed and having a lot of what-the-fuck moments, I feel like The Devil Doll, because it's made by Todd Browning for MGM, just feels a lot more polished and competent than Supernatural ended up feeling. So that's sort of my range, 30 to 36. Where were you looking? That is pretty much where I was looking. Okay. Um, 
I also was kind of looking around Murders in the Rue Morgue. I felt that if you took all the horror elements of Murders in the Rue Morgue and all of the horror elements of The Devil Doll and compared them, Rue Morgue blew it out of the water. I definitely see what you're saying about... Yeah, I did the, the reverse other... comparison. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. So I, I could be talked into it going above. I agree about Devil Doll not going above Dr. X. But kind of my floor is the mummy. Okay. In this range, there's another Todd Browning film. Yes. Mark of the Vampire, which also has Lionel Barrymore in it. <laughs> what do we think about those two? Mark of the Vampire was kind of like Dracula on speed, whereas this is something totally different. What did we like better? So I like that the devil doll sticks to its guns. It's not like they weren't dolls in the first place you know the whole movie was not real yeah yeah but i i think i enjoy mark of the vampire more yeah we kind of described it as like the halloween kind of spooky yes um whereas this film you know has cool moments and stuff but i don't think i found it as it didn't intrigue me as much as mark of the vampire did what this movie has going for it and what feels the most Todd Browning about it is it's fucking weird. Yeah. Like, Mark of the Vampire honestly isn't that weird, mostly because it's Dracula again, but then with a twist ending. Yeah. Whereas this is just bizarre. So that's sort of what it has in its favor, I think. If it's not as good as Mark of the Vampire, how does it stand up against, like, Mystery of the Wax Museum? Yeah, again, that's really hard because, um... The horror elements of Mystery of the Wax Museum are fun, but it does feel like a little derivative of, like, how good Dr. X was. They're both, like, about bitter old men coming back for their revenge years after the fact with, like, an overly elaborate mad science scheme that doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. The difference is that in this movie, we're actually following the villain. Yeah, rather than, like, a spunky reporter trying to solve it. Right, exactly. So in that case, like, I can see the devil doll going above Mystery of the Wax Museum. I feel like they're pretty comparable, though. Mm. I mean, Mystery of the Wax Museum has that two-tone technicolor. It has that spunky reporter, which doesn't belong in a horror movie, but is a character I'll always like. Yeah. Um, It's got Faye Ray uh, and Lionel Atwill. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. But we think it goes below Mark of the Vampire. I would also be fine with it going above. I It's really, it's tough to rank because of this, like, mashup of three things, you sure. know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Why are you certain it's better than The Mummy? Because it's original? <laughs> like, The Mummy's fun. But after that prologue scene, it's just kind of Egyptian Dracula. Like, that's right. the name of the t- name of the episode, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, whereas this is, like, whole new ideas. What the hell did this have to do with Burn Witch Burn at the end of the day? Um, what, the... Was, what was from that book in here? <laughs> uh, so it's the way that the people died, um, mm-hmm. like, having that look of terror on their face, that's kind of similar, um, and the idea of a doll, like a doll shop. Okay, was the cross-dressing in the book? I couldn't find a detailed enough synopsis of the book, so I can't say, but I don't think so. 
This is tough. I just don't know if it's better or worse than Mystery of the Wax Museum, Sarah. Which would you rather watch again? If I, if you came home one night and I said, we're either watching Devil Doll or Mystery of the Wax Museum, which would you rather? I think Mystery of the Wax Museum. Okay, well then, that's where it's going to go. Uh, entering the list at number 35, below Mystery of the Wax Museum but above The Mummy, is the final Todd Browning film that we're going to see. Not his last movie altogether. He made one more film after this before... The failure of that film kind of led to him retiring from making movies. Uh, but number 35 on the list, The Devil Doll from 1936, directed by Todd Browning. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned in this episode, as well as an appeals box if you would like to contest the ranking of this or other movies. If you feel it should be higher or lower or not on the list at all, send us a note and uh, let us know why. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can also contact us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. One of the ways that you can help the show out is by leaving us a rating or a review on any of those services or wherever you happen to listen to the show if you access us through our RSS feed. Another way you can help out the show is just through word of mouth. If you have a friend who you think might like the program, let them know about it. Maybe they're a doll maker and they want to know more about the devil doll. Right, sure. (laughs) Or a big Lionel Barrymore fan. (laughs) Yeah, or that. You know, that's more likely. Um, Yeah, let them know about the show. Another way that you can help us out is if you have enjoyed listening to us, if uh, we're one of your faves, head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a patron of the night. You can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month, uh, and at higher tiers, $5 and $10 respectively, patrons get access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes and also monthly horror short stories written by me. Our first Patreon goal, if we hit it, will be to do extra episodes, one a month, covering horror-adjacent films. You know, like Army of Darkness. Edward Scissorhands. Scooby-Doo. Right. We have to watch Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. I think that's what it's called. I hate that. That's like that, like, cartoon TV movie. Yeah. It's all of those were so bad. No, don't. The animation don't even. in them are, no, is, is like, no, it's so hurts good. No, me, ben, the animation. No, you don't understand. That movie's so good, though. It No, really, it's so good. Can we just watch Mystery Incorporated instead? Uh, that's so long, though. Anyways, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, next week we are hopping back over to Britain for the last horror movie of 1936 which is the last horror movie for the next three years. It's The Man Who Changed His Mind. (laughs) Didn't the UK ban horror movies? Yeah. After this. After this. Okay. So I see that it's the country that changed their mind. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Boris Karloff's in it, and that's what we're watching next week. Awesome. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.